Amen. Well, today we come to the end of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah in chapter 13, and we're going to read the entirety of the chapter. I know it's 31 verses, but the reading of God's Word is just as important as the preaching of God's Word, and so we would ask that you would give your reverence and diligence hearing and listening to God's holy word from Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of the law in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite would ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing, and as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel, all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chamber of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the court of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurer over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedadiah of the Levites, as their assistants, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Matthiah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. and Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing the heaps of grains and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Syrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark, the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath commanded that the doors should be shut, gave orders that they should not be opened until after Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate, and no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. 
In those days also I saw the Jews had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons for yourself. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him, even him, to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil? and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women. And one of the sons, Jehoiad, the son of Elishab, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat the Hornonite, and I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priests and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering and appointed times, and for the first fruits, Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Jesus said to his disciples on the night of his arrest, that you will fall away because of me this night. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And you remember that Peter was incensed by those words. He said, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. They, implying the other disciples, they probably will. But I, me, never. In fact, he was emphatic at this, that this would not, and in fact could not happen to him. And Jesus no doubt, looked at him, perhaps with a smirk, and said, truly I tell you, Peter, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Sure enough, in just a few short hours, that is exactly what happened. Peter denied his Lord, not once, but three times. And Peter demonstrates to us the human heart. In other words, he demonstrates our heart, the one that makes loud and boastful claims, yet struggles mightily with the follow-through, that sings like we have done this morning with gusto and fervor, and yet Monday comes and we have spiritual slack and similar patterns of sin again and again. We think that we can conquer the world for Christ, and yet that roar so quickly becomes a whimper. We are Peter, a denier, a betrayer, a backpedaler, and too often a traitor to the cause of Christ. And that should sting a little, but it is true. And it's not like the Lord does not know, nor know our hearts. No, he knows it and knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet what is amazing is that the Lord does not castigate and separate. Rather, the Lord extends the good news of the gospel to Peter, as well as sinners like ourselves, again and again. Why do I say all of this? Because what we see this morning is the same pattern in the people of God during Nehemiah's day. 
even though they had made oaths and covenants, and we have gone over those oaths and those covenants, even though they had dedicated themselves to the worship of God, they quickly turned. Because the natural bent of man is not towards godliness, but away from it. It is the gravity of depravity to be pulled down, to lose that spiritual fervor, to lose that fire, to lose that first love for our God. And so as we read this passage this day, we shouldn't come with righteous indignation and think, how could they have done such a thing as this? We shouldn't have that attitude at all. But rather, this passage and so many others throughout the scripture should be a warning to us and call us to wholehearted dependence upon the Lord and a desire to remain faithful and be faithful by using the means that God has given to us. So we look at this passage this morning in two points, the picture of corruption and then the cure for such corruption. First, the picture. We saw just a few weeks ago in chapter 10 that the people made a covenant with God, the summary of which was that they would not intermarry with unbelievers, that they would remember the Sabbath, and that they were not to neglect the Lord's house, but rather bring in the offerings and bring in their first fruits and their tithes. And it was quite clear, and it was clear to all, and all of them agreed to it. You remember them saying, amen and amen. In other words, it was a whole life and body dedication unto God. And it was truly a great day. But what we see of them, what we see of ourselves, is that vows are easy, but commitment is hard. And as we fast forward a Several years, we don't know exactly how many. We see that Nehemiah has gone back to Persia to fulfill his commitment to the king. You remember that he was a cupbearer, and that the cupbearer was uh, the king was allowing him as the cupbearer to to take a time of extended leave so that he could go to Jerusalem and and help them out to rebuild and to usher in this reformation. But he said that he would only be gone for a certain amount of time, and so after he finished his task, he went back. And it's always a good sign when your employer wants you back and takes you back. If you ask for leave and your employer says, well, let's just make it indefinite, that's not a good sign, is it? But that's not the case with Nehemiah. He went back and the king had him back. And he left this city that he had helped and this city that he loved. And it demonstrates again that high character of Nehemiah to fulfill his word. But we read here in chapter 13 that after some time, Nehemiah requested again that he would be able to go back and check on the welfare of this city that he loved, this city of Jerusalem. And as he returns, what he found was not good. It was not good at all. The temple was being neglected means the worship of God was most likely not taking place. The Sabbath was being treated as just another day, and there was intermarriage taking place with people of other nations. In other words, it was as if Nehemiah had never been there, as if he had never spent his time rebuilding this thing and, this, and ushering in this reformation. 
The people of God had neglected the house and their offerings and their tithes. The Levites, as we read, had gone back to working the fields. Why? Because there was nobody that was providing for them. And so they had to feed their own families by working the land instead of working in the temple. The inhabitants of Jerusalem were treading wine in the wine press and gathering and harvesting from the fields. And the marketplace was open for trading and selling on the Sabbath day. And it says that many of the children were speaking a foreign language because they were an offspring of intermarriage. Could you imagine Nehemiah's dismay? He must have thought, what has happened? It's like leaving a toddler alone just for a few moments only for them to come back and having completely destroyed the room. And you think, what took place? How does this happen? I was only gone for a moment. This has been a similar experience for Nehemiah on a national level. He dedicated years of his life to these people and to this city. And probably in less than half the time it took to build it up, it reverted back to the place as before. The people that said that they would not do such things are doing the very things that they said they would not do. And so to quote Shakespeare's Hamlet, there's something rotten in Denmark. In this case, it's not Denmark, it's Jerusalem. And the stench is the people of God. And this is wicked. And they are acting in wickedness. You might say, well, that seems a little judgmental, Pastor. Maybe they could have used a little freshening up, a little bit of improvement. Perhaps they had become a little bit slack. No, no, no. You misunderstand the situation. You misunderstand how bad it was. As we see at the very beginning of chapter 13, Nehemiah starts with a little flashback of when they read through the book of the law and how they read that the Ammonites and the Moabites were to be excluded from the people of God. Why? Because during the days of Moses, they did not assist the people of God as they were wandering through the wilderness, but rather they hired Balaam to curse them. And we know what Genesis chapter 12 says, that those that bless you shall be blessed, but those that curse you shall be cursed. And so the Ammonites were cursed and they were excluded from the covenant of God and all of the people said that we will separate from such people. But then we go into verse four. And what we read about is when Nehemiah comes back, not only is there Ammonites living in Jerusalem, but there's one living in the temple. In one of the side rooms, where the offering and the tithes were supposed to go. And no doubt that room was empty. It was not in use because the people weren't really giving. And so the high priest says, well, we can make good use of this room and I'm going to allow one of my relatives, probably through intermarriage, to use this room to live in. And he's an Ammonite. And he's not just any Ammonite, he's Tobiah the Ammonite. Do you remember that name? You should. He, along with Sanballat, were the ones that led the opposition to Nehemiah and the work. 
He's one of them that mocked them and ridiculed them as they began to rebuild the wall. Tobiah is the one that said that a fox walking on the wall will knock it down because it'll be so feeble, it'll be so frail. Yes, that is him. Not only is he excluded, not excluded, but he is living in the holy city and not just in the holy city, but in the holiest place of the holy city, the temple itself. And so don't tell me that this is just a little bit of spiritual slack. This is utter desecration. This is a free-for-all. This is everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. This is like when Paul writes to the Corinthians, that church that he poured into, as he leaves, he finds out and hears from others that there is sexual immorality in the church. A man has his father's wife, and the church has done nothing about it. And Paul says to them and, and chastises them and rebukes them and says, this isn't even tolerated among the pagans. Even unbelievers know that this is not right. When pagans and unbelievers have a better moral compass than the church, then things have sunk awfully low. The same can be said in Nehemiah's day. There was a notorious enemy of Israel that had made his home in the house of God. The fox is in the hen house, and they have opened the front door and welcomed him in. But as appalling as this is, and it is, is it surprising? Sadly, no. Before we cast stones of moral indignation, can we honestly say that the church in the 21st century is much better off when we hear way too often a frequent scandal in the church where pastors and church leaders fall and fail, when large denominations that started so well and so faithfully have lost their way, denying essential truths of the faith, when church members are physically and emotionally and spiritually abused within the walls of the church, leaders that are to be as Christ are anything but That is shameful. And the Lord of the church is dishonored and defamed by such action and by such sin. It is truly shameful and wicked. And it might be easy for us to say, well, good thing that is just out there. And that is not here. Listen, we pray that it's not. And we work hard to prevent such, and it is a spiritual battle weekly, but it would be absolutely foolish for us to think that what we see taking place in Nehemiah's day or what we see in churches or denominations today could not happen to us. Therefore, we must be warned. We must beware. As Pastor Myers told you last week, we are not a glitzy and glamorous church, but I'll go even one step further. And if you've been a part of our new member class, you have heard me say this. If you think that this is a perfect church with a perfect pastor or pastors and with perfect people, then just give us time because we will let you down and we will fail you and perhaps even sin against you. And I say that not to say that it is okay or to dismiss it because I'm not or because I'm saying that is our intention because it surely is not, but that is the reality of church. And the truth is that you will do the same to your church 
As one of my college professors said, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you will ruin it. The point being is that there is no perfect church because there are no perfect people under heaven. The problem is not church. The problem is the people in the church. In other words, to be a little bit more frank, the problem is you and the problem is me. And so if we want to point fingers as we are so accustomed to do, that finger better come back pointing to us. Otherwise, we don't understand the real, true problem. We are not perfect. And so if you're trying to be stopped, stop pretending that you have a perfect family or a perfect marriage or that you have everything perfectly together or that you have a perfect answer for every problem someone else might have because you don't have problems. Who are you fooling? That doesn't attract. That repels because people see through it because that is not reality for any of us. Likewise, don't think that the counter to that is airing your dirty laundry or showing how chaotic and disorderly your life is. If that is true of you, stop that too. Because the messiness and brokenness of your life, it really can just be a a form of false humility that really is a self-righteousness that shows that you're real, that you're authentic, and other people are just fake and pretentious. No, that's just another form of pretentiousness. Do you understand? Have I offended everybody? I hope so. The point is this, the human heart, our heart, is to think that we are much better than we are. And that's not true. In fact, that's a false gospel. That's another religion altogether. No, the depravity is not out there. It is in here. And that's what we need salvation from. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. See, when Paul speaks in Romans chapter 1 through 3, and he speaks of no one righteous, no, not one, oftentimes we're thinking that he is speaking to unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. No, we need to remember who he's addressing. And he tells us who he's addressing in Romans chapter one. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. In other words, he's addressing the church. He's saying you have no room to boast because you have no righteousness of your own. And if we don't understand that, then we don't understand faith. We don't understand the gospel. We don't understand the gift of salvation because it's not by works lest any man should boast. Jesus said, I have come not for the righteous, but sinners. Why? Because it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. So don't you see that we are the sick sinners? that need salvation. We are the wretches saved by grace, and but by the grace of God, there go I, and there go we. What is true of this passage is true of us, and we need to be warned this morning of the inner corruption as we sang earlier, 
prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Do you understand that? Do you understand that sense in your own heart and your own life? I hope you do, because it has you to stick close to Christ. And that leads us to our second point, the cure for corruption. I say all this not to lead you to despair, but as I said, to be warned and to know that there is a need for reformation always, all the time. Reformation in the church and reformation in our hearts because let's be reminded that being reformed doesn't just mean we adhere to a certain particular theology. It is, but it's really saying that we are reforming ourselves again and again according to the truth. And so therefore we need to employ the means that God has given so that we are truly living according to the truth and that we're not hypocritical as so often we can be. But what is it? What are the things that God has given to us? What are the things in this passage that are laid out to us that we need to be warned about and that we need to take and consider? Well, the first I would think is that we need to be wise with our associations, to be wise with our friendships and those that we bind ourselves to, not only just in marriage, but in business, as friends, as associations. Why? Because Israel was called out of the nations to be a light unto the nations, not like the nations. And the same is true for us. You become what you associate with. You want to know who you are? Just look at your friends. Look at their character. Look at the things that they value. Because you are no different. We might think that we're different, but we're not. We conform to the group, to the association. Birds of the feather flock together, we say. And so if you want to be godly, then we must walk with those that prioritize godliness and holiness and the scriptures and the truth. And if we walk with the ungodly, then you will be ungodly. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Children and youth, listen to me, this is so very important. The influence of your peers and your friends will form your behavior. It'll form your thoughts. You will become like they are. And they will become like you are. And so prioritize those that value the things of God rather than the things of earth. Especially as school starts. And you're trying to make those friendships. Look around and find the one, even if it is just one, that has those same values, those same hunger for truth and for righteousness. And become friends with such a person as that. But this goes beyond children and youth, doesn't it? As I said, what those around you value is what you will value. Is it godliness? Is it the praise of God? Or is it the things of earth and the praises of men? Again, the Israelites did not take this word. Even though they had covenanted, even though they had vowed that they would not do such things, they became like them. Their children spoke the language of the nations. In other words, a, a whole generation was lost, most likely, because of this, because they did not 
disassociate because they did not separate themselves. And in fact, you, you think Nehemiah is, is probably going to go out of his mind. He is saying, do, do you understand what took place to Solomon? Solomon was one of the, the godliest and, and, and most wise men, and yet foreign women made him to sin and led him astray. Do you think you're better than Solomon, basically, Nehemiah is saying? Do you think you're stronger? Do you think you're more spiritual than him? And that same word is, is true to us. Yes, we're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. But it doesn't mean what we pull out. It doesn't mean we don't have interactions with the world. Of course we do. But the warning is very clear throughout the Scripture. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You hear the progression there, the further entrapment, that it begins with walking and then standing, and then pretty soon you're, you're sitting amongst the wicked. And so how do we counter that? Well, we go to the very beginning. Do not walk in the way or the counsel of the wicked, but rather have your delight be in the law of the Lord. And on it, the blessed man, the blessed woman meditates day and night. Be careful with your associations. Second, the scripture would tell us to prioritize the Lord's day. You might read this passage and think like many do that this Sabbath stuff is, well, it's really just of the Old Testament or that it's legalistic and that we don't really need to do anything anymore or we don't really need to keep that anymore. Well, last time I checked, remember the Sabbath day is part of the Ten Commandments. It's one of the ten. And just as we can't cut out having no other gods or, or, or do not commit murder or do not commit adultery, so too we cannot cut out this aspect of remembering the Sabbath day because it's part of the moral law. It's not a part of the ceremonial or civil law. But this wasn't just for Israel as a nation. This is for the people of God, both old and new, including you and me. We need the Sabbath. Why? Because we need rest. Physical rest, yes, but even more importantly, spiritual rest. We need spiritual renewal. We need spiritual recreation, recreation. Where we're built up and refreshed and renewed spiritually. Why? Because you go out in the world and and the world beats you up and works you hard and puts you away wet, as they say. And you should come in here every Sunday ringed out like a dry sponge. Like you have nothing to give. And you should come in and say, Lord, once again, fill me. Renew me. Refresh me. Lord, fill me up with what I need, which is you. Because I need that weekly. And guess what? The Lord has built that into your schedule. It's called the Sabbath. Too often we think that we're smarter than God. We think, I don't, I don't need that, or I got too much to do, or I got other priorities, or I would rather go do that over there. No, we underestimate our spiritual need. Because if you do not prioritize the Lord's day, then you're headed for failure. Well, it's similar. Do a NASCAR race. Not much of a fan of NASCAR, but I know that in NASCAR, 
as in all car racing, if you're going to win the race, you need to take a pit stop, which seems counter to winning, doesn't it? Because you think if, well, if they just keep going, if they just keep doing more laps and don't stop, then they'll get ahead of the competition and they'll win the race. But what happens, or what would happen if a racer decided that type of philosophy? If he took that approach to race day, it probably would be okay for one lap or two laps or five laps or maybe even 10 laps. But eventually what's going to happen? You're going to run out of gas. You're going to blow a tire. You're going to burn up the motor. Well, that is analogous to the Christian life. And to the Christian that does not Sabbath, you won't finish the race. You'll burn up. You'll burn out. And so we're to treat that one day a week differently for your good. And it is God-given. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for the man. We need that Sabbath. And so Isaiah 58 says, call the Sabbath a delight. The holy day of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath day. Third passage would tell us to choose wise and, and godly leaders. I know the entirety of this book tells us that message, but chapter 13 really cements this. When Nehemiah was in leadership, we'd say that there was a strong spiritual trajectory. And what happens when he leaves? Well, it declines and declines quickly. We see that Eliashib, the high priest, this scoundrel makes a room for Tobiah in the temple. Later on, we read that his son married the daughter of Sanballat. You remember Sanballat? He was the other crony of Tobiah who was enemies of Israel. And you can understand that just because these were the highest spiritual officers or officials, there's nothing spiritual or godly about them. And should we be surprised that under such leadership, Jerusalem and the people suffered? In other words, they followed suit. Attitude reflects leadership. And what was the attitude of the leadership when Nehemiah left? Quite poor. Pursued other pursuits other than the Lord. But then when we come back, and you have to appreciate this, you, you see the attitude of Nehemiah in regards to godliness and holiness. We read of Nehemiah throwing Tobiah's furniture out of the temple. We see that those that were profaning the Sabbath, he tells them that if they continue, he's going to lay hands on them. He pulls out the hair of some of them that are intermarrying, and he chases the priest that was married to Sanballat's daughter. You might read this passage and say, Nehemiah might be a little bit crazy. And maybe he was. But I remember another man who flipped a few tables and chased some others out of the temple with a whip. Was he crazy? And if so, maybe we need a little more, more crazy these days. Not because we're endorsing violence. I don't think this was even violence per se, but it is an endorsement for zeal and for passion and for godliness and for truth. One that's saying, this is not all right. This is not okay. This is not going to continue to go on. And I'll do everything that I can to stop it and to prevent it and to put us back on another course. That needs to come from the top down. And so as we think again about officer nominations, 
Who among us has that? Who among us has what Jeremiah says, fire in his bones that is evidenced in his life? Not that he's perfect or sinless. Again, I don't need to go back. No one is perfect, but one that evidences the aspect of humility and righteousness and love for the Lord. Nominate them and only nominate them. Because that is the kind of leadership that we need. And do pray for your leadership. And I know that you do. And we appreciate it so much that God would continue to have that fire, that holiness, that little bit of even crazy that Nehemiah has here for what is right and what is true. Let me conclude with this. Where do you have godly association and proper Lord's Day observation and godly leadership that's bringing you to Christ? You have it in the church. And even though church has problems and is flawed, God still uses it. And we need the church. We need one another. We need an assembly like this. And God is pleased to use it. And yet, we must also say that the church won't make you perfect. It will fall short because we will fall short. That is why we need the Lord of the church. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need his blood and his righteousness. He alone can save us. He alone can sustain us because it is by his grace and his grace alone that we will remain faithful. And so praise God that the one that began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. Without that, we have no hope. But with it, we have great hope because our hope is not in us, not in the church. It is in the Lord of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we close this book, this wonderful book of Nehemiah, I love how it ends. It would have been very easy, easy for Nehemiah to, to end the book in chapter 12 and essentially just say, well, everyone in Jerusalem lived happily ever after the end. But that's not the truth, is it? Because life on earth is not a fairy tale. It's not happily ever after the end, and it won't be until Christ Jesus comes back again. And so I appreciate how this book ends. It demonstrates that Jerusalem was not good, that the people of God were not good. They were still sinful. They still needed another, and we still need another. And his name is Jesus. And he has come, and he is coming again, and we must look to him this day and always. And so as we end, let's end by praying this prayer. Prayer of Nehemiah at the very end of this book. Remember me, oh my God, for good. God has provided the greatest good, the greatest and only good that we need, which is his very own son. Without him, we are completely and utterly lost. But in him, and in him alone, we are not only saved, but we are sustained and even maintained for all of eternity. Praise God. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful book. We thank you, Lord, that it brings us back to Christ again and again, that we see a people that was very much incomplete and that is sinful. 
And we see the same in ourselves. And so the need for Christ still remains with us. And Lord, we thank you that you have provided your son for us, that perfect atonement, that perfect righteousness. And it is in him alone that we are made perfect and made right and made complete. Without him, oh Lord, we have nothing. But Lord, in him, we are made complete. And so Lord, we pray as you continue to work in us, the God that began a good work would bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And until that day when we are made complete, Lord, would you continue to sanctify us and make us more like Christ, more like Nehemiah that loved your truth and loved your word and wanted the people of God to evidence that and to go in the ways of peace and the way of truth and the way that demonstrates our love for you. Would you, O Lord, plant these truths in our hearts and our minds? And as we close this book, Lord, would we not close out the truths thereof? May it find seed in our hearts. And would it bear fruit 30, 60, even 100-fold, O Lord? By your Holy Spirit, we pray.